You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, everyone. What a joy to be with you and to see you and to experience some cool mornings as we start off the fall season. Has that been a good thing for you? Yes, I know it has. Nothing like not sweating at night when you're asleep. Um, Open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We are going to be looking at the second half of, the, of chapter 12 um, as we continue in our study in the book of Romans. We're going to read this passage together, and uh, I will pray, and we will jump in. Before I do, uh, let me introduce myself to those of you who may be new. My name is Brady Goodwin. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, every so often get the joy of opening up the Scriptures with you. Um, but we'll be looking at Romans 12 starting in verse 9, Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. The word of the Lord says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we ask that as we look to this passage of your word, that you would help us by the Holy Spirit's working to reflect the kind of life that you desire us to lead as believers in Jesus Christ? Would you help us um, to see those areas of need that keep us from that kind of life so that we might look once again this morning on our Savior, who not only modeled this life for us perfectly, but also empowers our own pursuit of it by his grace? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I need to begin with a really important question, and it's this. What is the best Christmas movie of all time? Elf, elf okay, we have one elf. <laughs> Wonderful Life, that's not true. Um, <laughs> what else? If it's 95% sad and 5% good, it doesn't count. Somebody else? Home Alone, Christmas Story, okay, okay. None of you have said it yet, but 
Die Hard, that's, a, that's in the running. It raises the question, okay, is it a Christmas movie because of the time in which it takes place, or is it, does it have to be about Christmas? And there's all kinds of debates on that. This is, the, this is actually the answer, okay? The answer is love actually, okay? Somebody's raising their hand. Somebody's like, what is that? Let me explain. 2003, who was an adult in 2003? Thank you. The movie Love Actually is one of those ones that happens around Christmas. Christmas is a minor character, probably not a Christmas movie, more a romantic comedy. Before you go and watch this, be, just know this is a movie you need to make sure that it's okay for you to watch. I'm not endorsing you watching this movie. Um, but Love Actually tells the stories of these different yet interconnected individuals that are all uh, uh, taking place around Christmas time, and they're asking, and they're looking at a common theme, the pursuit of love. And if you're unfamiliar, there's vignettes. They all kind of come together. It's quite funny. It's set in England, uh, all these folks around London, but they're all looking for love. They're grieving the loss of love, or they're navigating the challenges related to loving relationships. And one of the things that this, mov this movie's message foreshadows is much of what we now have experienced in our culture over the last 18 years, that love is love, whatever it is, its expression, and if you look hard enough for it, you will find it. That's the thing that unites all these stories. It's not really a Christmas movie, just in you know, Christmas time. The movie even begins with a kind of tidy summary uh, when one of the main characters, Hugh Grant, plays the prime minister of the UK, and he says this at the beginning in a vo voiceover. He says, it's, I'm not going to read it in a British accent, by the way. He says, it seems to me that love is everywhere. Often, it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling that you'll find that love actually is all around. What a, what a sweet thing. Yes? Okay. But despite its largely secular presuppositions about the nature of love, this movie is asking an important question that we ask. How can a person love and be loved in a meaningful way, all within the complexity and brokenness of life and relationships? Do we not ask this? We ask this all the time. How can we experience a life of love? But what love actually, and other films like it, they can't do is they can't provide us with an answer that truly satisfies. Despite all the charms, despite Hugh Grant's suggestions, love is not actually all around. It's not merely waiting for our discovery so that we can live the life we've always wanted. Real love Love that can actually handle the sorrow and brokenness of our lives and can make sense of it in a way that leads to true meaning, that kind of love has to be put on. It has to be pursued. Love of this kind, so distinct in a world of counterfeits, is the focus of the passage that we just read from Romans 12. In that passage, Paul lays out a vision for a life of distinctly Christian love, even when circumstances may complicate its pursuit. So as we think on this text this morning, I want to ask three questions of us um, as we engage Paul's words. The first one is this, what does it actually mean to pursue a life of love? If it's not what we see in love actually, then what is it actually? That's terrible. I'm sorry for that. 
Second, what threats exist to that life of love? There are threats. There are things that are gonna keep you and I from this kind of pursuit. But third, and so crucial, how has the love of Jesus overcome those threats, okay? Those are the three questions we're asking. What does it mean to pursue a life of love? What are the threats that exist to this life? And how does the love of Jesus overcome those threats? Okay, so first, what does it mean to pursue a life of love? Before I answer this question directly, let's consider where this passage fits into the overall argument of Romans 12. Two weeks ago, Pastor Shea looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is probably the most significant hinge passage that explains a ruling ethic of the Christian life in all of the New Testament. Its basic meaning is this. In light of everything that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, those who believe in him are to present their lives for his service. Because of God's mercy in the gospel, we are to live not for ourselves, but for Jesus and for his glory. Next, uh, next, last week, Shay looked at Romans 12, verses three through eight, which describes the particular giftings of the Holy Spirit, which makes such a life of worship a possibility in all the diversity that's needed in the body to accomplish it. We are to humbly pursue the specific gifting God has given to us by his spirit as we commit our lives in service to the Lord. Our passage today follows those two sections by describing the characteristics that such a life is meant to express. So in this sense, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is the how to the what of Romans 12, 1 through 8. It's our job description. It's what the Christian life is meant to look like. And it's also as close as we're gonna get in Paul's writings to the kinds of things that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. It quotes from the book of Proverbs. Um, It gives us in this sense, a clear example of of what we would call counter catechesis. Uh, You have heard it said, but I say to you, uh, the Roman church, like us today, they were confronted with many different notions of love, most of which missed the mark. And just like them, we need a clear understanding of what love is and how it is to be pursued in contrast to the false definitions that are so often presented in our culture. And so let's begin by looking at Romans 12, verse 9. Paul begins with this simple statement, let love be genuine. There are a lot of different attributes that are mentioned in what follows, And some commentators think that everything that is found in this passage is kind of a junk drawer of the Christian life, that it may not have a lot of ordering, it's just sort of miscellaneous things. But I don't think that's what's being communicated. Paul is too smart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his works in the book of Romans, that Paul is too sharp a mind to just throw things down on paper. He has an order in mind. And what he is saying is that all of this flows from and is anchored in a Christian understanding of love. Let love be genuine is the subject heading of everything that follows. He's asking a question, what is the Christian life to be marked by? What will, if it is absent, hinder any of our other efforts at following Christ? It's love. John Stott, the great English pastor and theologian, summarizes Romans 9, uh, 12, 9 through 21 with 12 descriptive adjectives. And I'm going to borrow these categories and discuss each of them briefly. So calm down. I know there's 12 of them, but they're important. They help us give some framework to what we're talking about. We're going to look at them as we think about this job description for the Christian life. Okay, so first, and we've already said it, love must be genuine or sincere. 
The Greek word that we see here is often translated without hypocrisy. That's probably the natural transliteration, which just means that it must be real. It cannot be disingenuous. People can usually tell when our love is saccharine, which is just a word that means sweet, but not terribly genuine. People can tell. And they can also tell when it is the real thing. Our love must be sincere. Second, our love must be characterized by discernment. As he continues, he says, abhor what is evil. And this simply means to hold to God's definitions for good and evil, for truth and falsehood, rather than the shifting definitions that flow either from what we want in our disordered hearts or what our culture determines is worth pursuing. There must be discernment. Third is affection. Christian love sees other believers as family. That's why the Bible is filled with this kind of metaphor to describe Christian relationships. And it's not a dysfunctional family that's marked by bitterness or passivity, but it's to be one that's characterized by delight and devotion and care. There has to be affection. Fourth, Christian love must be dedicated to honor. The ESV translation that I read out of this morning is not necessarily as clear as it could be on this point because outdoing one another and showing honor, if you read it, you're like, is that a competition? Am I supposed to say, no, let me honor you? That's not what he's saying. The NIV comes a little bit closer to the meaning when it says, honor one another above yourselves. True love, Christian love, preferences others rather than ourselves. It consistently puts others first. Fifth is enthusiasm. We read, do not be slothful in zeal. To be enthusiastic in our love is a direct contradiction to the often inert, lazy, or downright slothful way that you and I can relate to others and to the Lord. And it helps us to see that if we are those who carry the message of humanity's hope in Jesus, what business do we have keeping it to ourselves with no zeal or energy? What business do we have of withholding a heart of love to others when such a heart is what Christ has showed us? And so it has to be enthusiastic. It has to have energy. Next is patience. And not just patience in general, but patience in tribulation, patience in affliction. And this is actually an interesting point because what you will see with those who walk in genuine love is a patience with others. They're going to forbear with those who are weak and immature, but their lives are also going to be marked by endurance as they struggle through difficulty in their own lives. They're going to walk in patience in hard days. Seventh, generosity. Paul's going to say this of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, "'For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich,' Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Those who have been given much and who understand the grace that such a gift required, they are in turn going to give generously of what they have, especially to those who are a part of God's family. Eighth, hospitality. There is not, think about it in this way. Is there much more that is, uh, is Hold on. Is there much that is more meaningful than a warm home full of laughter, full of food, and that welcomes us in an embrace of love? That is 
one of those things that we just cherish when we experience it. And Christian love is a love that reflects this kind of welcoming. It draws others in just as Jesus entered into our lives. Okay, so these first, see, I didn't through it fast. It's cool. We made it through. That's eight of them. We have four more. The first eight, they're all positive. They're all what we should see flow from our hearts as we live in light of God's mercy. These final four are reactive. It's how does love respond when others are hurting or when others hurt us? Because we know that genuine love is not only that which loves when things are good, but especially so when situations are difficult. Okay, so then looking, looking, following along in the text, starting in verse 14, we see love that is marked by good will. Paul will say in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And this can be a little confusing because it's somewhat abstract. But as we think about relationships that are often marked by pain and difficulty, sometimes even by vitriol and bitterness, to bless those who treat us in such ways simply means that we do not wish harm upon them. We don't want them to suffer harm. The truth is that many times our bitterness is actually a way of holding others in judgment. This kind of love actually releases people from such bondage. But love is also expressed through sympathy. Sympathy, how do you react when you find out that others are hurting or grieving? When we read, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, is your heart tender when others are struggling or is it unfeeling and disaffected? Christian love is love that enters in in such a way that we are moved by the suffering of others. And in the same way, can you rejoice with others as they celebrate, even if what brings them joy is not matched by the circumstances of your life? Can you still rejoice with them? Next is harmony. Do we live in unity with those in our body? Christian love is really careful to speak, whether it's by conversation, by text, by text, or online in a way that honors rather than divides. Christian love is careful to speak in a way that honors rather than divides. This kind of love also sees those that society forgets. Do we draw near to those whom our culture ignores? And then lastly, and maybe as a summary, humility. The last part of verse 16 says, never be wise in your own sight. A couple of statements later in verse 18, we see as if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The first ingredient towards reconciliation is humility. Are we willing to pursue peace or will we seek vengeance for our pain apart from God? Revenge in relationships is not just returning evil for evil, but it also includes those things that we do to exercise control in our lives in response to the hurt that others cause us. But love, in contrast, it walks in trust and humility. It says we could be wrong. We need God's help and we don't hate the other. And so what do all these characteristics have in common? What are some things that unite them? First, we see that they reflect the life of Jesus himself. When we look at Jesus's life, you could see all 12 of these things flowing from the way he interacts with other people. Second is that they are decidedly others 
focused. All of these things turn our attention away from ourselves and onto the needs of other people. And third, because Paul is writing to the Roman church, because this is a really significant passage directly after the statements of what it means to give our lives in service of the Lord, these are things that are to be pursued by all who love Jesus and who are loved by him. They're to be pursued by all of us. That's the job description, okay? But surely you have also noticed something else that all these things have in common when you think about your life. They are inconsistently present. They're not all there at all times. We don't love as we should. We struggle to respond when other people hurt us. We feel caught in cycles of self-interest that keep us from a life of love. We don't see or anticipate the threats that keep us from such a life. So we've talked about that pursuit of the life of love. We now need to think about what are the threats? What are the things that are going to keep us? Let me start by saying this. The threats to a life of love, they are counterfeits. They are alternative lives that we often buy into instead of the real thing. And I wanna walk through three counterfeits with you this morning, three alternative lives that we often turn to instead of a life of love, all of which threaten our pursuit of Christ-like love, okay? The first of these is what we could call the comfortable life. The comfortable life is characterized chiefly by its pursuit of comfort in various expressions. The comfortable life is highly individualistic. It's me and my life. It gauges success primarily by what can be enjoyed in this life, by what can be enjoyed. Some of us pursue the comfortable life through material gain. And so maybe it's a high-income job, maybe it's the accumulation of wealth, maybe it's the sense of accomplishment that all of those things may provide. Perhaps it is in what money allows us to have, a nice house, a nice car, the newest whatever, financial security, retirement, flexibility when it comes to where we will educate our children. There are material things that drive us, that give us a life of comfort as we envision. Some of us, however, pursue the comfortable life through an experiential lens. So every weekend is consumed by leisure, whether it's days that are filled with college football, NFL games, golf, just doing nothing, Netflix, whatever. Every three-day weekend is the opportunity for the next trip out of town or for time at the lake. Whatever our days consist of, they are primarily dedicated toward our idea of fun or fulfillment or preparing for it, all in view of us pursuing the things that we want to do. But some of us pursue the comfortable life through essentially relational means. And this is actually an interesting thing because they probably go hand in hand often, but they're not exclusive. They're not, they're not always together. But it's this, that our friendships and our interactions, they never really get to the real stuff of life because to do so might be too distressing or too disruptive for the things we really want. Whenever someone asks how we're doing, we force a smile. We say, I'm good, doing good. Whatever the actual state of our hearts might be. Conflict is largely avoided because we value peace in our relationships so much. And if it is there for experience, we resolve it as quickly as we can by whatever means necessary, even if it means overlooking a legitimate issue that needs to be further addressed in the relationship. 
Of course, many of these things I'm talking about that are associated with the comfortable life are not wrong in themselves, okay? Wealth, financial security, leisure, peace in relationships, these are certainly not evils per se. And in addition, many times people who pursue comfortable lives, they can also be quite generous and hospitable with other people, which is something we read in Romans 12. And so how then is the comfortable life a threat to a life of love? The issue is the relationship the relationship that we have to these things that accompany a life of comfort. Our relationship to such objects, they reveal what we believe about the kind of life we should be able to live and what desires inform the actions we take to pursue such a life. Let me say that again. Our relationship to such objects, they reveal what we believe about the kind of life we should be able to live. I should be able to have these things. And they therefore inform the kind of desires that motivate our actions in pursuing that kind of life. And so if you believe that your life is fundamentally to be marked by ease or comfort, that will be the chief motivator behind your actions. And it doesn't take us long to be influenced in this direction as well. How many of you have felt the sting of inferiority when you think about all of the things that others have that you don't, okay? It's usually only because, let me say it in this way, how many of you have become convinced that you need a walk-in, climate-controlled wine cellar only after hanging out at the one in your rich friend's house? Like, that's how this drives us. The stuff that we go, I don't need that. And then we sit inside one and we go, it's pretty nice. Okay. So instead of zeal for God and Christ-like love, what we see in the pursuit of comfort is usually apathy and laziness when it's compared against what we really love. We just just don't care. Instead of contentment, we experience a kind of jealousy and lust for things. Instead of affection for or moving toward other people, there's usually just a disinterest because of how self-focused we are. Instead of humility, there's often a kind of superiority that we put on It's connected to our financial prowess or relative stability. Instead of honest dealing in relationships, there is avoidance. The comfortable life is a threat to the life of love because it relegates sacrifice in a person's life to the margins and it elevates only the obtaining of one's desires. That's the comfortable life. The second threat is the curated life. The curated life concerns itself with the order and arrangement of a person's life, either for acceptance by others or for our own sense of well-being. It too is individualistic. It is about our lives, but it is also very existential. How can my life be what I want it to be and not what I don't? So the curated life can show up in relatively innocuous ways. Maybe it's the image that we portray to others on social media. Beautiful sunsets, smiling families, shiplap-laden home reno projects, a perfectly presented dinner. And perhaps there is genuine joy that overflows when we share our life and our creativity with others in this way. But too often we do this, if we're honest, so that other people will see the life that we present rather than to acknowledge the obvious imperfections and weaknesses that are tucked neatly out of view. But in addition, people also pursue the curated life 
in their day-to-day activities, and they do this in the name of wellness. There's a possibility for good is here, here as well, insofar as this pursuit represents the rightful balancing of priorities in our lives. Many times we as Christians would do really well to consider the time and priority that we give to certain pursuits in our lives and to remove things that keep us from a life of love that honors the Lord. But too often, the kind of wellness that accompanies the curated life is self-seeking. We cut out what is unhealthy as we define it so that we can pursue only those things that give life or spark joy. And we don't limit this to our schedule, but we often and perhaps most concerningly do this with our relationships. We excise those in our lives whom we deem as unhealthy who drain us emotionally, who we describe as toxic, which can be an accurate descriptor, but is too often used to signify anyone we don't like or anyone with whom we conflict. And in this sense, the curated life is probably just a more modern articulation of the concept of boundaries. It's not wrong to acknowledge or certain establish certain limitations in our relationships, but the issue will always arise when boundaries, as the counselor Ed Welch will put it, when these things become the ruling metaphor for our lives. They become the lens by which we see our relationships with other people. And therein, there also is a kind of belief that's expressed. My life should not be characterized by difficult relationships. Therefore, you are not going to be a part of it. These things become an excuse for self-protection and a kind of relational excommunication. There is no consideration for how can I wisely love this person in front of me, which may mean changing how we interact with them towards a more limited manner or a wise manner, but rather it is only, I will not allow you to encroach on my well-being. I will not allow you to act in such a way, regardless of its intent, that is offensive to me. And of course, the great irony for the Christian is in the fact that our relationships by their very nature involve imperfect people. And above all, we should be the ones who model forbearance and patience and overlooking offenses. And so like the comfortable life, the curated life ultimately fails to model a life of love because it elevates a kind of insular self-protection, loving myself over and against the call of Christ to open our lives and love others as he does. There's a third threat. The third threat is the cynical life. The cynical life is a life of discernment bent inward. It claims a voice of truth, and it can actually sometimes have a positive effect in this direction, but too often it also takes the language of abhorring what is evil to extremes. And so the cynical life shows up in several places as well. One of those is just an overall distrust in relationships. Rather than believing the best about people, cynical people walk in suspicion towards others. They offer interpretations of the words and motivations of other people that are steeped in speculation and mistrust. And sadly, many times this cynicism actually comes in response to legitimate wounds that we have suffered from other people or from suffering in general. But what happens rather than working towards trust in God and healing in the grace of Jesus, those who pursue the cynical life, they become hardened or embittered. Instead of blessing others, 
who may have hurt them. They actually wish harm on their lives, or at least they have a clamoring for justice in their hearts. And they end up nurturing a kind of inner vengeance. Maybe it doesn't show up externally, but it's there. Instead of harmony and unity, there is division and strife. A second area that the cynical life shows up, which unfortunately is all too common among Christians, is when disagreements arise, and in particular when those disagreements occur over social media. So, of course, conflict happens. You and I should not be surprised when it occurs. We should not be naive to the realities of the causes that take place. But what I'm describing is what takes place when there is a lapse of wisdom and discernment, when cynicism and conflict meet. Humble people recognize the role of their own sinful thoughts and the attitudes and how those contribute to conflict. And they work to acknowledge this. Humble people move towards peace because they recognize what Romans 12, 18 asks us to do. We are to live peaceably with others as far as we can help it. But cynical people, because they are ultimately convinced they are right, they do not often budge when conflicts take place. Instead of nuance, instead of recognizing the perspective of other people, there is a kind of self-affirming posturing of oneself over another with declarations that are made about the character of the other and what their wrongness represents. Like I said, this is all the more the case when such disagreements occur on social media where a desire to be seen as right by others or as wise or some inflamed sense of injustice leads us to unwisely engaging without giving due consideration to what our words, which by the way, are visible to everyone, what our words will actually achieve and the effect they may have on other people. There's no consideration given to what it means to do what is honorable in the sight of all. No reflection made as to whether what we are saying is even true on the one hand or will move us closer to peace on the other. I'm not saying that offering an opinion that differs from another person on social media is inherently wrong, okay? There's examples of believing men and women who dialogue with grace and with charity with others. But what I'm talking about is the cynicism that marks so many of the Twitter debates of our day and how that could not possibly be mistaken for godly dialogue that is taking place in the interest of unity and peace. So whether it is in relationships in general or in the public square, Like the other two, the cynical life fails to produce a life of love because it substitutes certainty instead of humility and judgment in place of mercy. Okay, those are the three threats. You feel encouraged? Yeah, okay. Some of us are gonna see one of these lives fitting more neatly on ours than the others, okay? Some of us say, that's me, the comfortable life to a T. Some of us go, I don't know if I'm really cynical. Some of us go, it's all three. Okay, we see the overlap. We see the ways that we acknowledge desires for comfort or control or judgment and how that keeps us from a life of distinctly Christian love. But there may be some of you who are going, no, that's not me. I'm good. That's them. And I want to ask you to consider whether you might actually be living one of these alternative lives without knowing it. We often think we are more loving towards others than we actually are. And we do this without realizing how much we struggle to love when situations or relationships are difficult. 
This was Jesus' exact point in our text that was read during our call to worship from Luke 6.32 when he said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. There is actually great freedom as we acknowledge the challenges that we face in loving others. For us to admit that we are not very good at loving others is actually going to help us turn to the one who succeeded where we have failed. Okay, so that brings us to the third question. We've talked about what does it mean to pursue a life of love? What are the threats that exist to this life? I want to finish up by looking at how the love of Jesus overcomes these threats so that we can grow in loving just as he does. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a man that I was counseling, and he confessed to me, I'm really struggling in my love for God and in my affection for my wife. As I listened to him, there was a theme that began to emerge. This man, dry in his feelings toward the Lord, had lost sight of all of the ways that God's love had touched his life. I suspect that if you do what I did when I thought about his words, that if you look at your life, you will probably see a similar pattern. My love for others wanes only when my grasp of God's love for me is lacking. Scripture is going to confirm this basic breakdown as what affects each of us. We fail to live in light of the gospel because we forget the love that is revealed through the gospel. This is why Paul says at the beginning of Romans 12 that it is in view of the mercies of God in the gospel that we are to present our lives as an expression of worship. In other words, it is only because of God's love in Jesus Christ that we can actually pursue a life of love. John will say this in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. But how exactly did he love us? Knowing that Jesus Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we don't have time to consider all the ways. But I do want to think of three that correspond to the specific threats that we mentioned earlier. You and I may strive to seek a life of comfort, but Jesus didn't do that. He didn't order his days around leisure. Yes, he enjoyed rest and laughter and delight, but he gave his time to others. He slowed down to listen. He slowed down to look someone in the eyes and to tell them the truth in love. You and I may try to curate a life so that we can present a certain picture of who we are or to avoid kinds of difficulties, but Jesus didn't do that. He was completely himself with everyone he knew. Some people loved him. Some people despised him. But he didn't live for their approval, but rather the approval of the Father. On top of that, and this is amazing, he welcomed everyone who would come to them. He bore with the immature, the angry, the ones who were always crossing boundaries, He didn't erect walls to keep people out. He tore them down. Paul will say this in Ephesians 2, that Jesus is the one who who dismantled the dividing wall of hostility that kept us from peace and unity with him and with others. John will say that Jesus took up residence with us. To quote Eugene Peterson in his translation, the message, he moved into the neighborhood. We're going to learn this in a few weeks as well when we look at Romans 15, but he welcomed us all all in our weakness and in our neediness. 
We may try to justify our bitterness through the snare of cynicism, but Jesus didn't. He was so humble. He never called attention to himself. He did only what the Father did. He didn't speak critically of others except when it was to lead them to restoration or to protect other people from harm. He didn't return evil to those who sinned against him. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. But instead, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. He desired forgiveness even for those who put him to death. He and he alone truly overcame evil with good. We can pursue a life of love only to the extent that we look to the one who did it first. When we see his love for us as truly for us, he loves you. There are those of you in this room right now who do not believe that Jesus loves you. You've heard it all your life or you heard it last year for the first time and you think, how could it actually be true? But Jesus, God in the flesh, loves you in the particulars of your life. Second, this happens when we see his love for us as truly enough. When we stop clamoring for more. When we stop looking to the next thing, but we actually see him as the one who is able to satisfy the desires of our hearts. Jesus wants to, and is the only one who can, actually produce contentedness in your heart. He's the only one. Third, this happens when we see his love for us as the example for our lives. Paul's going to say this elsewhere in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, but we're to become imitators of God as his beloved children. Sounds like a tall order. It goes on, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We don't pursue this out of some incorrect belief that we can actually be like Jesus in his glory, but we do it because we want to live a life of love like he lived. If we know that he loved us, if we know that his love can satisfy us, then we will want to help other people to encounter that love. We'll want them to actually see love that transforms. And so let me ask you before we pray, where do you need to put away the false pursuits of comfort, the false pursuits of a curated life, or the shackles of a cynical heart? Where do you need to put those things away? Because you do, and so do I. Where do you right now have room to love other people as Jesus loved us? Where do you have room to move towards other people in love, to see them differently than maybe you saw them before? May we only look to him for the help we need as we seek to reflect the life of love that he lived. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your help to be able to see the power of your love, to be able to see the grace that equips us to love other people. We need your help for the forgiveness that we need for failing to do this. 
Would you help us this morning to be refreshed, not only by your love, but by the empowerment of your spirit? Help us to come to your table now with a posture of faith. Help us to leave this place with a renewed commitment to love others as you have loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.